brother is watching you. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, you are warned. This program is not to be listened to. Welcome to 1984 Today, your one-stop shop for all things dystopian. I'm your host, Mike Friedman. Something that's easy to do, and which I hope to avoid in this podcast, is to be too nearsighted. It's easy to pick up on what's going on around me, and in the countries most reported on where I live, and overlook the fact that we live in a big world where, unfortunately, there's plenty of dystopia to go round. In this episode, our guest is Beatrice Busaniche. Beatrice is an Argentinian activist and academic focused on free culture and human rights in the digital environment. She's the co-founder of the Argentine chapter of the Wikimedia Foundation, a member of Creative Commons Argentina, and the president of Fundación Via Libre. She is also a professor of social sciences at the University of Buenos Aires, in case you wanted even more evidence of her heavy overqualification for appearing on our podcast. Her books include Artificial Monopolies Over Intangible Assets and Intellectual Property and Human Rights, all topics that are right up our particular dark and twisted alley. Beatrice, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. So I came across your work because I read a fascinating article by Karen Naundorf in Wired magazine about the, at least to me, previously unknown facial recognition surveillance camera system in the city of Buenos Aires. So maybe... A good place for us to start might be if you give me and our listeners a kind of brief overview of your work and bring us to the point where that program of surveillance hit your radar. Well, I work in, at uh, Fundación Via Libre, which is an NGO based here in Argentina, but with a regional impact uh, since, uh, well, Via Libre is a 23-years-old NGO here in Argentina uh, dealing with human rights and technology. So we are one of the pioneers of our of Latin America. Uh, our first approach to this uh, uh, the intersection between human rights and technology came from the free software community and the, the right to use and to develop uh, technologies in a way that is respectful for human rights. Um, and with that as a vision, uh, we, uh, we have a, a, a diverse agenda, uh, which includes, as you already mentioned, some topics regarding intellectual property and the free uh, flow of information through the internet and access to knowledge and free culture and so on. But also, since 20 years ago, we decided to also follow the privacy and data protection agenda. Uh, we also have an agenda on artificial intelligence. We work on social impacts of, uh, of different artifacts of uh, NLP and things like that. We have a, a team working on ethics and AI. Uh, we also have um, a team working on freedom of expression and freedom of association and, and the right to protest and, and, and so on. Uh, everything that has to do with human rights and technology is something that uh, is in our radar. Um, 
as we are a small NGO, we are not a big one. Um, we have a limited uh, resources, so our priorities are the ones including culture, intellectual property, privacy, AI, and we usually say that we are going. Uh, uh, we we are all the time. Uh, trying to do some damage control. So in in many issues, our agenda is uh, based on uh, trends here in Argentina. And surveillance is a trend for a long time. Uh, we started working on surveillance, especially in surveillance technologies and data protections uh, since 20 years ago. Um, Argentina has a, a long-term uh, um, surveillance policies, uh, which are uh, going through different administrations. Uh, the government change, uh, but the policies, the surveillance policies, not. Um, and so we started working with these issues uh, 20 years ago with data protection, with uh, some uh, um, initiatives regarding um, telecommunications uh, surveillance. And in this uh, agenda, suddenly these uh, facial recognition technologies appeared uh, as a reality. And uh, it was such a, a shock that uh, the city government this uh, uh, was first um, introduced in our, um, in our uh, environment by the city of Buenos Aires. Uh, that was something that was already done when they announced it. They said, we implemented a system and we were all, we didn't expect this to happen. And that happened in, in 2019, before the pandemic. And we've been following this uh, since then. Uh, but these technologies appeared in Buenos Aires, but they didn't appear in a vacuum. Uh, there were already some other uh, things uh, that were needed to implement this kind of uh, technologies. In 2011, so uh, 12 years ago, or yes, 12 years ago, because it was in November, um, uh, former president Cristina Fernández de Kirchner announced the implementation of CBIOS, which is a, a, a facial recognition database for all the people in Argentina, not only in Buenos Aires. And that was the egg of the snake. <laughs> the, the kernel, the acorn yes. from which this particular tree grew. Exactly, yes. And so we've so been following this uh, since then. You mentioned several things that I definitely want to hone in on, but one of them that immediately jumps out at me is the way in which you mentioned a trend that I think is definitely familiar to me and potentially to people from other countries other than the ones you and I live in, that when we look at the way these programs develop and are implemented, but also the way that they are discussed or sold to the public, there is this tendency, as you say, where the, the front person, the representative, the face changes, but the program doesn't. So Argentina itself right now is going through a period of flux where there is, at least as it's reported in the press, 
quite a big change in terms of the face. So I'm very curious uh, to know what your experience with this, uh, shall we say, underlying agenda versus the types of leaders that are pitching it from the front, what that experience has been, and how you feel that may or may not be different now that Argentina has a self-described libertarian president? Well, it's it's hard to explain how this works in Argentina because, uh, uh, well, no, it's not hard. It, it's uh, this... Uh, uh, This happens everywhere. Uh, I, first of all, I have to uh, do what you mentioned at the beginning. It's uh, try to uh, think uh, far away from, from us. In Argentina, we think that all oh, the tragedies, that everything happens to us. We are the, the heart of the world. We are the, uh, we are at the center. <laughs> we are, yes, but the Argentinians, we have this, uh, this, this uh, well-earned uh, uh, fame around the world. Uh, but this is not something that happens only to us. It's that uh, governments of different colors, with uh, absolutely polarized colors, uh, have the same policies, but they present them to the public in a different way. I remember when Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who is self-identified as progressive, um, presented this. Um, we said this is a very fascist uh, policy. This is not something that one who believes is a progressive could try to, to implement. It's a kind of policies that progressives oppose, not the, the kind of policies that progressive governments uh, uh, implement. But when we oppose that, most of the people following uh, her government told us, no, 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 but she's progressive. She will never use that, this against the people. Um, she's good. She's fantastic. We love her. She, uh, the state is good. So we have to trust the state. And we said, okay, let's say for a while that, that what you are saying is true. Let's, let's believe it for a while. What happens when the worst government ever comes to, to office? They say, no, no, that will never happen in Argentina. Argentina has a long trend of democracy. We, we had 40 years of a, a very vibrant and strong democracy. Uh, and that could never happen in Argentina. But it happened. And now we have a libertarian who doesn't believe in democracy. It's uh, It's incredible that when he was a candidate, he was in an interview on television to the view of 45 million people and he said uh, when the journalist asked him, do you believe in democracy? He couldn't say yes. He didn't say no but he did some, some periods in the air to, he didn't say yes. So we know that Javier Milei He's now our new president. Um, he doesn't believe in democracy. He's a libertarian in, 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 and a neoconservative in a worst uh, sense you could imagine. Um, and how? Uh, and now he's in office, but he's 
the Minister of Security is not new to us. She is a former uh, Ministry of Security during Mauricio Macri's government between uh, 2015 to 2019, four years, she was also the Ministry of Security. So we know her and we know how she interprets security. We know how she deals with social uh, movements. We know uh, what she thinks about uh, surveillance. Uh, she's a very fan of surveillance. She's really fan of surveillance. Um, in fact, during her uh, previous uh, um, uh, administration, when uh, between with, during Mauricio Macri's administration, we were a focus of surveillance. Uh, I I know for sure because I I, I am also in a in a in a, in, a, in, a, in a case at the at the justice. Um, that I must, I've been personally surveilled by the, the secret service here in Argentina. Uh, during the, some conferences, we have a G20 here, we have the WTO um, ministerial uh, meeting here, so all the social movements, the NGOs, that we were uh, um, heavily surveilled uh, because with these arguments, because of Say national security and international security policy. So we know that uh, they will use every surveillance tool they have at hand. And Patricia Bullrich, she's the one I'm, I'm talking about, she's the Ministry of Security, was appointed to be the Ministry of Security in this government because of what she did during uh, the government of Mauricio Macri. She's a big um, buyer of technologies. She's, she loves buying technologies, surveillance technologies. She also is a member, she's a, in fact, she's the president of the, the political party that runs the government at the city of Buenos Aires, which is the one implementing this uh, um, surveillance technologies of facial recognitions in the streets. Um, so she's, uh, uh, we know her. It's not a surprise for us. It's, uh, we, we know what to expect. It, and in a way that, you know, here in, here in the UK, where I live, there's a saying which is that the civil service runs the country. Politicians come and go, but the civil service run the country. And I think maybe that's, where a lot of the conversation around what in the United States is referred to as the so-called deep state, I think that's where it comes from, which is that there are people who stay in their role because there are roles that are professional uh, in the sense that they know how to do a thing that not just anyone can step in. And it doesn't really suit the delivery of certain services to have people who are completely politically minded to do that. I don't think we need to know who someone voted for in order for them to be in charge of purifying water for a city or making sure that a power plant is inspected correctly, right? Um, so on the one hand, there's an argument to say that we don't want people having to pass a loyalty test in order to, to serve the country that they work for. But at the same time, this also means that there can be at least a sense from the public, and that's what I'm getting from what you say, that there are certain people who kind of get embedded 
they become the security person and then they they work there and much like in academia where new ideas don't get through because the existing big name in the field is the one that teaches all the new people and those people believe that person's ideas and scientific innovation tends to go in spurts right after the death of a famous person in the field because that's when new ideas suddenly break through that maybe in a way that's what happens in civil service so are we talking about a kind of understandable and accidental but unfortunate human tendency or do you in argentina feel that there are certain um certain ways in which certain people influence the policies of governments from these backseat positions regardless of the politics of the government I'm, i just want to make sure i know which way you're putting it well this uh, um, scenario you described of civil servants that stay in office and the politicians come and go it's not exactly how it works here in Argentina. It's not the same here. Uh, in fact, with the change of this, uh, 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 this new government started on December 10th, um, 2023, and it's changing everything. The head of... Uh, the office that uh, takes care of uh, uh, the, the the similar to to um, FDA, for example, this uh, food and and drugs. Uh, this we call it here ANMAT, uh, which is one of the most technical office of the state. So just to give you an example, the every time a government comes to office, a new a new, a new administration comes to office, uh, they change everything. The heads of, of this, also this very technical, very specific offices, they tend to change. And this new government also is doing something that is completely radical. It's, it's trying to change every... Uh, government's office, trying to close a lot of offices. Uh, we run from 19 ministers to nine. Um, it changes everything. It's trying to retract the state from almost every social activity. So uh, he's trying to change everything. So I'm not sure how this process will end no one knows here. We are all in a very difficult moment because it's, you know, it's life-changing. People are losing jobs. Um, the state being reduced in a very aggressive manner. So most of these professionals, we could maybe think they will keep the state working or moving or the, the bureaucrats, in a good way, uh, are also being fired from state. So it's, it's a, a very, very complicated panorama here in Argentina for, this, uh, for these years. And to return to this question of surveillance, and specifically the program in Buenos Aires, which I'd love to have some more detail on from you, um, 
when we see a situation like an aggressive rollback of the state where uh for those of our listeners maybe who aren't familiar or very familiar with the situation and i'm not pretending to be an expert here um we're talking of course about a situation where argentina has very high rate of inflation it's had severe economic difficulties for quite a while. There's also a very long history in Argentina of, shall we say, the state not being an entity that wants what's best for citizens. There's the history of the so-called Dirty War, uh, when the junta disappeared people, which included flying them over the ocean and tossing them out of airplanes. Um Subject of a fantastic film on Netflix called Argentina 1985, which I strongly recommend anyone to watch. Not that that will teach you the whole history, but it's a good start. So in a way, Argentina is a unique example of a place where people have less reason to trust the government than in a country where people weren't brutalized by official uh, regimes for decades. So that's where I suppose it becomes a bit surprising. Like... On the one hand, I get a note of either frustration or regret from you that, that the government, the state, is being pushed back a bit. But at the same time, when we speak about surveillance and intrusion, it's examples of the state going too far into people's lives. At least that's what I understood from the tone of what you were saying. So can you just kind of give us some details, some specifics about the ways in which the state intrudes too far, and then explain why... Why, in some cases, you want the state to be further into people's lives and in other cases further out? Yes. Well, this, this that may sound as a contradiction uh, is, uh, is uh, something that we, we are... This new government uh, is supporting and it's backed by the, the army, the military, the... the and Patricia Bullrich is a, uh, has a, um, a, a strong relationship with the security forces because the, the kind of economic uh, plan they are implementing is immediately generating reactions from the people. The people, you know, as you mentioned, Argentina has a, a strong history of going to the streets and protest against things they don't want. In fact, in 2001, we had five presidents in one week. Uh, and that, that beats was even because, Britain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, but but I, I said, there is a big difference between Argentina and Britain, uh, that you have a parliamentary democracy. So the parliament, they, they just appoint the, the prime minister, and they can ask, okay, leave and they appoint another one. It's a total different uh, thing like in Argentina. We have a presidential democracy. So we elect a president and the president is supposed to stay in office for four years. And it's, it's, uh, we are not prepared to have this kind of, uh, of uh, things changing because it was it went bad, and then we have to replace him or her for someone else. And it's a totally we we are, we don't have the 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 ability to do that uh, if we don't do it in a in a very chaotic and uh, in also violent manner. So we, um, but our people 
is used to protest. We protest. We go to the Plaza de Mayo. If you come to Buenos Aires, go. The Plaza de Mayo is a beautiful place, full of history, uh, full of recent history. The mothers of Plaza de Mayo are part of our uh, of this history, but we go to the to this uh, to the square in front of the the Congress uh, and to the Plaza de Mayo, and we protest in every uh, place we go to the streets and we protest, and that's something very 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 Argentinian. <laughs> it's it's a, our style, but when you implement this kind of economic plan, and uh, you need to have the power to. Uh, attack the people protesting, and that's what they are building. We uh, we've seen it before in in other governments trying to implement this kind of uh, of economic plan that uh, that literally destroys the 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 quality of life of a lot of people. It's not that there's a lot of people suffering here in Argentina. We have forty percent of poverty, which is huge number um, but we are going f fast to an increasing of this number uh, so surveillance and um, uh, security forces very very strong armed and it's the key to keep this economic plan working so uh, it's it's not a contradiction they are uh, um investing a lot in these uh, security forces so because they will need it, because the, the people will go to the streets when they... Uh, they it's, it's Argentina. <laughs> That's and, it. If I'm not, and if I'm not mistaken, there was a government minister quoted in The Guardian uh, recently when asked about the, uh, the new restrictions on protesting in Argentina. The quote was, prison or bullet. Is that exactly. accurate? Yes. Yes. Prison or bullet. That was José Luis Espert. He's a, a national uh, deputy. He's a member of the Chamber of, of Deputies. Um, but it, that's the, the logic. It's uh, uh, Quite a chilling parallel to Pablo Escobar's famous phrase, plata o plomo, right? Oh, yes. 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 But <laughs> this is coming from our... Legally elected representatives. <laughs> oh, it's it's crazy, it's horrible. Um, but uh, surveillance. And of this government is just just to, yeah yeah just sorry just to bring us back. Then this government, of course, related to what you said earlier, this government is one that has inherited the surveillance infrastructure and legal authorities that were put in place by decades worth of development in the hands of the so-called more progressive governments. Yes. Yes. Exactly, exactly. There, uh, this uh, database of biometrics of all the people in Argentina, all the people, everyone, because we, we also have something uh, from a dictatorship in 1968. Uh, we, we, have, we had uh, uh, several dictatorships. Of course, the worst one was the... That one between 1976 to 1983. Um, uh, but in a former dictatorship in 1968, they implemented uh, 
the idea of the recognition of every person living in Argentina. We have a, a, a national ID system uh, that you cannot go around without your national ID. The, the cops can ask you to show your national ID. You have to identify with this national ID to almost everything you do in Argentina, to pay with a credit card, they ask you uh, your national ID, but to vote, you, we use it for voting, uh, identification. We don't have to be registered to vote. We just go with our, our national ID and we vote. Um, but we, you need this ID for everything here. If you don't have an ID, uh, this national ID, you cannot go to a hospital, you cannot go to a bank, you cannot go anywhere. So it's it's like a, um, a a policy that is disseminated and and installed in a way that no one ever thinks about dismantling this. It's uh, every time we discuss, we argue against this idea of having a national ID. They said. It's necessary, we need it, it's... Why? They, they, they just say, why do you want to take this off? It's okay. No, no one understands that. So that's a fight we abandoned because it's too heavy to do it. But when Cristina Fernández de Kirchner implemented this, it was like a, a new step. It's not only that we have this national ID, but that the state has our 10 fingers, everything. It's like we are criminals from <laughs> the beginning to have 10 fingers. We call it the pianito. It's like uh, playing the piano. We go to do the pianito. But everyone has the 10 fingerprints uh, and our biometric uh, um, scan. Photograph, iris, Photograph. face shape. Yes, yes. So this database, which is if you come to Argentina... At the airport, you will be scanned. And you will have to give your fingerprint as well to enter Argentina. So we not only have our database, but a lot of people coming come to Argentina. It's a beautiful country. Uh, but you have to do that. <laughs> and then you go into the system. In, yes, and then you go into the system. And every time we renew our passport and everything, we have to go again and put our fingerprints again and just scan your face again. So they have your uh, lifelong picture. So it's mm. easy to build your future face. Uh, and maybe to, just with, I'm speculating a little, but with that type of data set for so many millions of people, presumably if someone was interested, one could develop quite an agile uh, AI algorithm for predicting how people will look as they age. So for instance, for most wanted posters and so forth, if you have so much data on how people have aged accurately, it allows you to generate material if you wanted to, either for law enforcement or potentially for something nefarious, right? It, yes. In fact, the government usually sells these ideas to the public by saying, okay, we will find the people that is missing. And and they use that. There, there are some f very famous cases of child uh, uh, disappeared when they were babies or, or small kids that they are being looked for by their families, but also by the state. And they are showing how she or he looks now that is uh, 
maybe 15 or 16, 10 years after the last picture. And they are using that and they are, and, and of course, these are good uses of this technology because their family is trying to find the, the kids and, and, and so on. But they are showing that to promote it to the people. Um, but they are also using it. And the announcement a few uh, weeks ago was that they will use facial recognition to identify all the people protesting in the different squares in big cities, which is something that is already happening and that will happen a lot in the next month. So uh, they are using these technologies to identify the people to see who is going to protest against the government and who, know, who knows which are going to be the consequences. There are people that has uh, social support because they live in poverty and the state supports these people with uh, uh, something called the tarjeta. This, it's like a card uh, with money uh, to buy food. It's the tarjeta alimentar. Like a, kind of welfare, like a welfare yes, debit yes. card, but specifically and for food. Exactly. But they are saying, if you go to protest, we will cut this for you. So we, uh, we will identify you and we will cut this... Uh, this right you have it's something it's food it's the more the basics and this and this threat that they're making is that with due process or is this extra legal is this simply they're saying if we register you as at a protest against the government then we're going to cut off the money from the government because if you don't like the government doing one thing you can't have the benefit from the government for another thing that's it no, no, there's, there's no, it's just an administrative There's no court order, order there's no, no warrants, there's no... No, no nothing, yeah, it, nothing it, at all. The, I mean, this is the purest example of the so-called database state, right? This exactly. is why people try to bring attention to the Chinese social credit system and the ways in which it is potentially creeping in in more supposedly liberal Western countries is because of this tendency that once these systems are in place, these bits, these disconnected bits get connected. Exactly. And then suddenly you're not buying groceries this week because you didn't like the government cutting the Ministry of Education, for example. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the way it is working. We usually say that uh, once you have uh, surveillance technology that will be used to be uh, to, to surveillance. It's it's makes no sense. It's like we have also an anti-terrorist law, also approved during Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner administration. We also complain against that, and they said, "No, she's you have to trust the state. The state is good." They will never use it against the people. And that was true for that administration. They never use it against the people. For that administration. <laughs> yeah. But the law is there. But the law is there. They, they, they think as if they will stay in office forever and that there will never come a government that will be able to use it. And they are using it. And they, they will use it. I'm pretty sure of that. This, um, this makes me think of the attempt in the United States to create the Disinformation Governance Board, oh, yes. which, which, again, 
exactly as you say, and, and the ongoing push for the so-called misinformation, disinformation, malinformation uh, restrictions that they want to bring in, these are sold as the actions of a benevolent government trying to protect its people. And even if, as you said earlier, even if we are very generous and we take it at face value, that it's well-intentioned, that it's not intended to be misused and so forth, once the architecture is in place, once the legal precedent is set, once this is something that is accepted as practice that we will agree to from a government, any government that gets the keys to the kingdom can do the same thing. And it's not just the intentions of the people that sign the laws. It's the intentions of every single set of people who have the power under that same law forever after, which seems like a sucker's bet, if you ask me. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Every time they are proposing this kind of uh, uh, initiative, saying, okay, um, more surveillance or control on the media or control on the social media or someone uh, saying, okay, this uh, um, hate speech will be punished. Okay, let's... Okay, I don't like hate speech, but who's going to say what is hate speech and what are the considerations? Well, well, it's, so it's like yeah, of course. Okay, who's going to be the 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 jury of that? Who, who's going to say that? And and that's something that usually vanishes in the in the debate. It's like this is good or this is bad, and all the grays in between are banished. <laughs> it's like you are in favor or you oppose, and if you oppose, oh no, you are blah blah blah. It's it's very hard to, to debate in these these uh, issues. Yeah, um, I, spoke, I spoke I spoke to a writer named C.J. Hopkins, and he brought up the famous case in the United States of the Nazi Party in Illinois, where they wanted to march. This was, I think, in the seventies. Yes, And there was a big court case, and it was actually the ACLU, which at the time was led by, I believe, a Jewish man named Ira yes. Glasser, that defended the Nazi party's right to demonstrate on the proviso that a restriction against the Nazis in Illinois would be the excuse for a restriction against civil rights protesters in Alabama. And this is an example that we've seen not just in the United States almost everywhere, as you say, the idea that there is a line when it comes to speech or the freedom to assemble and to protest, the idea that there is a line begs the question of who determines the line. And as soon as the people determining the line change, suddenly the people who thought they were protecting themselves and their friends end up on the wrong side of it and are confused about being oppressed. It's a very... I know slippery slope arguments aren't things people like because they can be the kind of pearl clutching, won't somebody think of the children thing. But I really do think in the case of things like speech and assembly, it really is exactly that. As soon yes. as you have a different interpretation of what is hateful or what is problematic, you suddenly have a whole class of people who are outside of social discourse who never thought they would be blacklisted or prevented or arrested. Exactly, yes, and and with the surveillance technologies, uh, it's it's terrible because once you establish a system like this, like the national ID card, like the biometric database, um, or 
And the concept of uh, surveillance for security as a guarantee of security, you are already lost. <laughs> uh, because yes. uh, one of the hardest things we had uh, in the debates here in Argentina was to try to dismantle this idea of that, that it's not surveillance, it's security. Um, but security for who? Uh, and we, we usually have a debate on what does it mean, security? What is the concept of security? For us, security being a, a security is a human right as well. You have the right to, be, to have a life uh, with the integrity of your life, your family, your things, your private property, or whatever but also with all your rights. And losing privacy is very insecure. So security cannot be in opposition to privacy. If you lose privacy, it's, it's insecurity as well. So, so you cannot mm. be secure if you lose privacy. Uh, let me give you an example. It's a precondition. That, exactly, it's a precondition. It's a precondition. Privacy is security. <laughs> you have the right to be left alone. Live your life in peace with no intervention from people that has nothing to do with your life. So that is security as well. So if, if you don't see privacy as, as a, a basic condition for security, we will not see the contradiction. There is no contradiction between security and, pri and privacy. If you lose privacy you lose security. And let me give you an example of something that happened here in Argentina. I told you about the national ID and the biometric database. That's a big and very valuable database. Guess if you could buy this database on the internet. <laughs> oh, I was yes. just about to say, I mean, that's the same as Ancestry.com was bought by a private equity firm and suddenly all this genetic data and personal info is now in the hands of an investment company who can leverage it for profit without really any concern for the people who gave their details in good faith. Same thing. Exactly. You can go through the internet and buy this database because the Renaper, which is the office in charge of it, lost it. They suffered they lost an attack. It? Yes, no, they didn't. It's it was like they 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 had an attack, and someone stole it, and it's available. You can go to the internet and buy the information of me or whoever you want. Just ask by a name and ID number, and you will get the information. It's 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 also cheap. <laughs> it's it's you know, a I, nightmare. It 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 it. it really is and you don't get that toothpaste back into the tube i you you've reminded me i a while back i interviewed a, a lovely uh, a lovely woman who who runs a medical implant company and her idea was was really very smart and with all the right reasons the idea was if you had your entire medical history on a small implant under your skin with you all the time then everywhere you go, 
if, God forbid, something happens to you while you're on vacation and you're allergic to something, they can find out because it's all there, blah, blah, blah. You have control of your data in air quotes and so on. Wonderful lady, very clever product, very good idea in a kind of uh, neutral vacuum, right? But two things that came up when I was speaking to her that I never forgot, one of which was when I asked her about the security of the information that people put onto the implant using the interface provided by her company. And she said, well, we would never look at or use that data. And I said, okay, but would you ever sell your company? And she said, well, I mean, I don't plan to, but maybe. And I said, so what would happen if you sold it to a company that didn't care about the privacy of your customers the way you do? She said, well, we'd, we'd write it into the sale contract that they couldn't do that. I said, well, what if they didn't follow those rules? There's a non-zero chance that someone can just buy your product and leverage the data that you've gathered, regardless of how you want to protect it. And that was true. There's no way of really preventing in the real world against that. And then separately, she told me a story about being locked out of her own bank account because someone, she was using facial recognition to get into her banking app. Someone found a picture of her on the internet and used it to hack her bank account. And she, it took her three months to prove that she was herself. Because as she said to me, every time she spoke to the bank or went in, they were like, but, but they, but they have your face. And she's like, no, this, she pointed to herself. This, this is my face. This is my face. They went, yes, but they have it. And like, no, but it's me. How do you prove your face is yours if someone else has it? It's the same with biometrics. You have this database, exactly. fingerprints, face. How do you change your fingerprints? If, you, if someone gets your password, you change your password. How do you change your fingerprints? How do you change your iris? How do you change your face? It's the, the level of, I would like to think it's just naivete. Yes. The, rather than malice is crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Yes. Uh, the, the problem is that when you tell people these stories, which are, Dozens all over the world. There's lots of stories the same way. Uh, they said, okay, but it's okay. Everyone knows everything already. And Google already knows that. That's nothing to the hide, Google nothing answer. To fear, right? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And okay, Google already knows that. <laughs> why? It's <laughs> like, why? It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's, but it, it's, it's the so idea that the goalposts won't move, right? And this, in, a, in a way, I think this is what's very interesting to me from what you're describing. I mean, it's not funny what's happening in Argentina right now, but what is very interesting is a new president who comes in promising to resolve a longstanding economic crisis with probably necessary cuts to public spending, maybe going too far, maybe being too sweeping. I'm not a pr professor. I don't know. But, you know intuitively it makes sense that if you have an economic crisis and inflation that's scaling back on spending is at least a logical proposal and a self-styled libertarian who believes in privatizing public goods and services but that so-called libertarianism does not extend to the right to protest it doesn't extend to scaling back the surveillance state and i find that very interesting that where there's real, real power in someone's hands, their belief in freedom doesn't seem to apply. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, for example, let me let me um, share with you uh, an anecdote of this uh, president when he was in a chapter of deputies. Uh, there was an, uh, a law approved by a huge majority, except with two votes, the two votes from the Libertarian uh, uh, Party, uh, for an, a health database, unified and, and centralized. And they, he and, and who is the current vice president, were deputies in that moment, um, they were the only ones voting against this project. That was good. They say, okay, they, they value privacy. They are value they, they say, okay, the state does has nothing to do with my health, uh, so I have to uh keep it in privacy. So that that was a good decision. But that's something uh that has to do with health, not with security. When you mm -hmm. uh, move it to this other panorama of uh, having people protesting in the streets and protesting on the social networks, and um, the, the things change. Because they are not uh, only libertarians, but they are conservatives. Well, and, and, and it's, also... It's like I a, think a, a, a... Yes. No, go on, go on, please. No, 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 it's okay. Well, all I was going to say is I think another factor there is it might be true that popular resistance or protest to a government policy, which would work if given time and is a well-intentioned good idea, could stop that policy from lasting long enough in order to provide the benefit. And so in a way... If we're going to be really, not just generous, but reasonable, I'd say every government, I suppose, believes that given the time and the space, the policies they want to put in place will work and will be for the better. And in a way, it therefore logically follows that any government who really feels an urgent sense that their policies need to fix something and seeing that there will be tremendous resistance and pushback to the point where it might stop the policy from going through would therefore want to prevent in this, in quotes, particular case, protests that will stop them from fixing the problem like kind of like the equivalent of holding someone down while you're operating on them because if they move while you're operating on them they're going to hurt themselves more nobody wants to be pinned down to the ground but if you have to you know perform heart surgery on me without anesthetic someone needs to hold me down so i don't hurt myself by resisting in a way i think that the generous interpretation is that that but it's just that all governments think that way. <laughs> so it's, you know, we're not in favor of preventing protest. We're just in favor of preventing this protest about this policy in this case. But legal precedent and law don't work that way. No, they, they shouldn't do that because democracy works. You have a parliament, you have the, the justice, you have the, the division of power. In Argentina, we have a republic with three main powers that are uh, designed by our constitution to control 
themselves. And uh, if you certainly believe that your policy is going to solve a problem, you have to convince the people of that. And you have to negotiate with the rest of the government because we, this is not a monarchy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you can't just do it with the stroke of a pen. There has to be consensus, yeah. And you have to accept that there will be people protesting against that. For example, let me, let me remember, for example, a lot of people also people from this government that were protesting and cutting streets and in a de very, very noisy and strong demonstrations against the sanitary measures took during the COVID-19 pandemics. The lockdowns. The lockdowns. Um, the current Ministry of Security, Patricia Woolrich, was one of the leaders of these protests, cutting streets and doing a lot of noisy demonstrations during the lockdowns. Um, and she was respected. No one took her to jail. No one beat her. No one uh, it wasn't did anything. Or bullet. She, no, no prison or bullet for her. <laughs> 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 and she did exactly what they are proposing, prison or bullet cutting streets, going to the streets to demonstrate against this measure. So she so, was respected as a protester. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and, and in exactly the way that we're just saying, right? That when, when it was a policy that she was against, she was in the street, blocking the street and protesting it. And now that she's in government and there's a policy that they want to push through, she is saying you can gather on the pavement, on the sidewalk, but not in the road. Or exactly. prisoner bullet. So my how things change depending on what policy we're talking about. So then exactly. we don't have rules, right? We just have preferences. Exactly, exactly. Um, but um, yes, that's that's it. it it's the, this is uh, the kind of. Uh, in fact, could be something else. Those protests against the lockdowns were really small, really small. Mm. And the protest against some government policies are huge. We talk about thousands of people in the street. Um, in fact, a, a, a few weeks ago, there were the first big demonstration. We also have this uh, uh, noisy protest in these uh, different neighborhoods in the city. Um, and mm. it, it might have to do with the number of people protesting. Could be something. <laughs> if too many people show up, then it's a problem, right? Yes. Uh, for them, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and you, if I'm not mistaken, just shifting gears ever so slightly, do I recall correctly that you've also done some work looking at the way voting machines were introduced in Argentina? Oh, yes. We were the ones opposing the voting machines here for a long time. Meaning we, computerized we, voting machines. Right? Yes. Not yes. pull a handle and pierce a piece of paper. No, no, just Digi computer. Digital voting. Yes, digital right. voting. Yes, yes. Yes, we oppose that because of the integrity of the election, the secrecy of the voting, uh, the transparency of the process. Uh, we managed to stop in 2016 a bill that was supposed to change the whole system for the whole country, for the federal elections. Mm. Uh, we 
couldn't stop it in the city of Buenos Aires. We used this in the first round of elections in uh, 2023. Uh, but then it was such a such a, a mess uh, that the government retired this uh, system. They said, okay, we will not use it again because it was really a mess. Uh, there were long queues of people waiting to vote because the machines didn't work and, and it was uh, confusion and chaos. And the people were complaining at all, a lot. And every everyone saw what we've been saying, okay, don't use these machines. <laughs> uh, it's a long-term um, fight. We started fighting against this uh, trend in 2003, when we have the first uh, election with machines in the Ushuaia. It's in very, very far south there um, in Argentina. Fuego, right? Yes, Tierra del Fuego. Um, they used this system as a, as a, a concept proof and we oppose that because of the integrity the, the absolute black box system uh, we cannot uh, uh, see how it works we cannot do an, a real um, control on the system um, and because Argentina has a very strong um, election system it's uh, very, very strong. There's no complaints. There's no real uh, accusations of fraud or something like that. It's a very trustworthy system. In so as the saying goes, it was a solution in search of a problem. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, and that also has to do with privacy. We, we, we managed to stop it in uh, Congress because we showed um, how we could uh, violate the secret the secrecy of the ballot uh using mm. computers and it was a very interesting uh moment so so you so the way that you got them thrown out was by showing that it would no longer be secret voting exactly. it would no longer be a secret ballot yes. not because of the integrity of the software itself but simply because if you couldn't guarantee a voter privacy then they couldn't vote in that way that was the grounds yes yes hmm. In fact, because all the the discourse around the integrity of the software was too abstract for the, the the people, they just don't care about that because they use computers, they use uh, ATMs, they use cellular and mobile phones, and there's software everywhere, and no one cares about the integrity of the code or the or the free software or who controls that. They, they just don't care. It was too abstract. So we had to show a concrete consequence of that. And mm. by showing that you could know who are you voting while you are voting was the, the big red flag. Mm. <laughs> at least at the Congress. At least at the Congress. And so since then, digital voting has therefore not become the norm in Argentina, but no. it's taken repeated resistance. Yes, we we use paper ballots all over the the country, but we do in as, the UK, we we do in yes, the UK also. I know, I know, I know. Uh, but as we are a federal state, we have the federal elections for the national government, but then we have twenty four different districts, different uh, states, and each state has its own constitution and its own election rules. So there are some cases by states. For example, the city of Buenos Aires 
has its own constitution and they decided to use this electronic voting for the local election, not for the national election. So that was chaotic because you have to go to the uh, poll station, which are schools here. We use schools uh, to vote. Um, you had first the machine to vote for the local election and then the paper ballot to vote for the national election. It was a hmm. kind of a nightmare. Um, but the electronic voting is coming by state by state and we are managing to stop it as far as, uh, as, we, as we could. <laughs> but there are some states. Neuquem, for example, is one of the provinces in the Patagonia is using it. Um, but it's... Uh, I think it's a matter of time that they will leave this because uh, it's uh, um, costly. It, it costs more. Uh, it doesn't work well. Um, but you're assuming that the reasons they want it is because it's cheaper and works better. <laughs> well, <laughs> we proved it. In, in fact, we were uh, in the city of Buenos Aires. Uh, we try. We, we presented a, um, a, an action in, uh, to the justice to stop it, and we said there is no uh, guarantee for the people's uh, rights, civil rights, to vote in secrecy, and, and, and all, all the speech we usually do. Um, but they, they just they use it, and it was such a mess that they said, "Okay, we will not use it anymore." <laughs> it was mm. a mess, and the people said, "Okay, it's a mess. Why are you using these machines, which are a mess? If we could just go and take the paper ballot and vote, why?" Mm. So that that was the best campaign. <laughs> it didn't work. That yeah, that'll help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. The media, it, it it was the media was incredible because all the media were in favor and suddenly that night they said, oh, where are the results? What is happening with the system? Oh, it, it, and it was a, a very, it was, I had to say, as as you may already notice, I laugh a lot about these tragedies. <laughs> it's like my way to survive. And I was laughing. I said, okay. You see, we told you. <laughs> yeah, we, we laugh so that we don't cry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, especially since 2024 is an election year in the United States, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the United States, more than any other major democracy, has pretty fully adopted digital voting as a standard. It, it, was, a, it was a surprise to a lot of people over the past, in the past two election cycles in the U.S., how long it takes to get election results. This was one of the reasons why perhaps suspicion crept in that there was something inappropriate happening was simply because in a, in a place where you can have a pizza at your door in half an hour and you can have a doctor consulting you via video call within 15 minutes of downloading an app, it seems very strange to have a digital system that slows down results by a matter of days or even weeks when before we used to have them by the end of the day. So do you think that in your experience investigating the digital voting system in Argentina that where digital voting has been implemented as the standard in other countries, one of the consequences is slower counting 
or less reliable delivery of results? Is that a almost a kind of direct consequence of the digital voting system? Well, I'm I don't know if the consequence is the delay on the results, uh, but one thing I am pretty sure about is that elections are opaque and that uh, it's something that democracy cannot permit. Democracy should be transparent because the, the electoral system has only two missions, only two. Deliver a winner and convince the loser that he or she really lost the election. Mm. Just that, just that simple. Which in a way is the same thing, right? Because they're two sides of the same coin. Exactly, exactly. It's the same thing. But convincing the loser is important. So if you don't have a system that is trustworthy for everyone in the process, and that everyone in the process not, is not only including the politicians, it includes the people who has to believe that their candidate already lost the election. Hmm. What we've seen in the capital that uh, January a few years ago um, with people in US, protesting in the US, yeah. yes, people protesting was a lot of people that in good faith didn't believe in the result of the election. And that is not uh, something democracy could accept. Well, it can't survive, Democracy. because if you don't have can't user's survive. consent, exactly. then you just have like some kind have... of banana republic with coups every two years. And... Exactly. 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 That's something that the electoral system should guarantee. And that is something that you could, should be able to prove to any rational Sure. Uh, limits, of course. There were uh, I've seen the the documentary on on that, and there's a lot of irrationality there. Uh, but I don't want to judge these people, even while I don't uh, have anything in common with that people. Um, but they look like people that, in a good faith, believe that they were fighting for democracy, and that's because the system is opaque. And they, they cannot control really what the system uh, does. Here in Argentina, we have a totally different way because the, the election authorities are regular people like you and me that is selected by the justice, by a czar, um, by by it's, it's a random election. But you vote in a place where there are 350 people voting in the same table, in the same place. And one, two or three people from these 350 people is selected randomly to control the election. That is something that is very interesting in Argentina because you can receive a telegram a week, a months before the election to say, you will be an, elector, an electoral official. You have to come yeah. to be a trained to do that. And it is, you have to do it. It's not an option. So it's like you jury have, duty. Yes, yes. Uh, you can uh, say, okay, I can't because I have this uh, health problem or I can't because I have to work because I, I 
do something or be oh I can't because I have a child and I'm the only care who take care of the child I can't so but you have to justify if you can't and you have to do it immediately after receiving the order mm. I, I, I I was in a in a seat uh, before it's a, it's a very it's something I, I really enjoyed even when it's hard work hard work uh, but it's uh, uh, you can be sure that you know someone who who did that or you did that. And mm. everyone that once in a while in his life did that knows that you cannot corrupt the system, that the system works because mm. it's very decentralized, it's random people, it's the teacher of your kids, it's your neighbor, it's you, it's the one that is selling you uh, fruits at the groceries, and it's everyone in every polling state. So we control the election. Mm. When we introduce the machine, you or me or the, the guy at the groceries cannot control the election. And that's very visible. The people controlling the election with the machines, they said, I, can, I don't know what this machine is doing. I can count the votes. I can see the ballots. I can f- fill the, all the papers I have to do. I can do all the election bureaucracy. I know how to do it because they trained me. Uh, they pay you. The state pays you for this day of work uh, and for the days you, you have to take. And you know how it works. You know how it works. Exactly. And this is something very interesting in Argentine democracy because hmm. everyone has to take care of the election. So it's hard to um, implement this this uh, um, this this uh, conspiracy ideas of someone stealing your election because to steal an election here, oh, you have to move a lot of people, and you are able to move that amount of people, then you will win an election in a in a right way. <laughs> It's one, so it's one of those things like corrupting Bitcoin, right? If you can actually pull it off, you deserve it. <laughs> it's, uh, of course. It's, if, if you can move that amount of people needed to steal the election, you want it. <laughs> it's like right. you don't need to do that. It's uh, very yeah. granular. In, in We have more than uh, 100,000 places uh, to vote in the whole country. And there's people regular people like you like me like my neighbors it's in mm. fact we'll be your neighbor because you you vote in your neighborhood so there for sure it's your neighbor who is sitting there counting the votes so in 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 the US this idea of okay there is a machine there is a private sector involved because it's not trustworthy uh, there is a uh, documentary of uh, pretty old i guess it's uh, called hacking democracy showing the debol scandal in in ohio uh, so how could you trust how hmm. could you trust if the friends of a government or of a politician or a party or even if they're acting it. independently but they just have their own intention and exactly. they have the ability to patch their software without being tracked and so on of course of I course it, 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 something that comes up for me it may be a little philosophical so i apologize but something that's very touching is the realization that the system is us and and when when these depersonalizing forces or these alienating technologies get in the way we 
partially because we forget because there's this extra layer between us and the way things function and partially because it's actually taken out of human hands and taken away from local areas we forget that the system is us and and once we forget or we are shown or deceived uh, into believing that there is this separate thing called the system then it naturally creates this dynamic where we are either controlling this other thing or we are controlled by or underneath this other thing and so in a way it totally changes our relationship from something that is us and our neighbors and our people and our city and our state where we are embedded in it we're surrounded by it and it's an interactive web of humans and it becomes inherently a kind of thinner more metallic superficial alienating idea of something that it's not just that it's not me it's not human it's it's no longer of the people i i think that is a, i think you're absolutely right that especially in, i mean in any system but especially in a democracy that shift which seems to have taken place more in some places than others or to a greater extent than in others it's a very worrying development and it's you know, it's, it's a hallmark of uh, dystopian ideas, this sense of alienation, of disempowerment, of the processes that govern our lives being on rails, moving without us. They have their own momentum, their own inertia, and we don't affect them. The, um, the definition of totalitarianism that I believe was given by Mussolini, which is everything inside the state and nothing outside the state. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like you've really very beautifully summed up this idea that the system is us, or at least that it should be us. And where yes. it isn't, that's the problem. And if we can fix that, then maybe we're not on a hiding to nothing. We're not on a runaway train. We just, there are steps we can take. Exactly, exactly. And building that is urgent. We have to urgently re-establish democracy from the baseline, from, from, from the basics, from the, from the uh, democracy is supposed to be bottom-up. Mm. So we the, Kratia, people, the voice of the people. Yes, yeah. we, we the people uh, el electing our representatives to represent us. Um, but the situation now is that the gap between the people making decisions and the people affected by these decisions is so big that looks like it's a gap that we will never uh, reduce. It's like, uh, hmm. I think this is the, the biggest crisis in democracy in the last years. Um, and... In fact, in Argentina, we are shocked, still shocked, uh, because, for example, the denial of dictatorship was something that we were not used to listen to. It was like no one dares to deny dictatorship or, or vindicate what they did or say that there was a war, which is, in Argentina, we don't say that it's a war. That's the that's language of the those people who who uh, who vindicate the 
dictatorship um, because there were not two sides of a war like they are trying to present that that the war was something necessary to keep peace and to uh, war is peace. It's Orwell. It's Orwell, of, of course. It's Orwell. It's it's like we need war to bring peace. It's like ignorance uh, is knowledge, freedom but, is slavery. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's like, well, now you say freedom of slavery, you remember that, for example, now we have, uh, they are uh, dismantling all the, I, I don't know if that word is right in English, I'm sorry. I love it. They, it's, I mean, te <laughs> technically it's dismantling, but dismantulating is a great word. Use okay, it, please. Okay. <laughs> sorry, it's like I'm trying to think in English. No, don't be. <laughs> I, I could not do this in Spanish, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can do it in English. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> Sorry for that. Um, but um, but they're, they're, uh, all the labor rights, they are trying to abolish all of them so you could be free to sell you as a slave <laughs> to the market. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's, it's like it's the same thing. It's like the freedom to be a slave. Well, you know, you've brought up some, I hope you don't mind if you have time, just one, one other thing that you work on that uh, the phrase itself, I find fascinating, this question of free culture, which I, I feel like it's something I haven't heard in English in that context. So perhaps it's translated from the Spanish and means something particular in Spanish. Um, but I, I feel like, especially with your focus and your advocacy, we are very much now, it's been building for a long time, and we've been through versions of this debate when we had the Napster legal case to do with music online and so forth, and now we have what potentially could be a landmark case between OpenAI and the New York Times, and there's also the Authors Guild in the United States, which are people who basically are generating protected content that they feel has been used outside of its license or without compensation in order to train language, large learning models, language learning models, large language models, whatever they're called, LLMs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not a scientist. Um, but this seems to be a, a thread that's run through computer technology since the beginning. There was always, in a way, this kind of hippie-ish, libertarian freedom vibe to the, the movement that became Silicon Valley. And so when people talk about technology as this move fast and break things, devil may care arrangement, I feel like it really does come from this throw away the old structures, build something new and let it take its own direction and momentum thing from the hippie movement, from the flower power generation <laughs> 60s. And we've come up from that to this point now where I really want to know what you think about where this line can be drawn or if indeed there is a line where on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm among my, my roles, I'm a filmmaker and there might be a song that I've heard since I was a child and the people who wrote it are now deceased. And the people who recorded it and the, the people who hired them to record it for their record label, they're all deceased. So there's no one alive who's missing out on income if I don't pay to use a particular song. But if I want to use it 
in a film or for any editorial purpose. I have to pay someone. I have to clear it. And so, you know, there's this argument that comes up a lot. At what point does Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin belong to the people when people have grown up with it and Led Zeppelin don't need the money in quotation marks and so on? Where does free culture meet this this more old idea that when you make something, you need to be paid for it and you should be compensated for your intellectual labor the same way you would be for your physical labor. Do you have two more hours to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this we have to do another episode sometime. Because huh? <laughs> this is one of the things that fascinates me. In fact, I, I usually I describe myself as an intellectual property nerd. Um, <laughs> uh, because, yes, I don't have an answer. There is not a, a clear I mean, in a way, answer. There isn't one, right? Yeah. N- no, uh, but um, I'm following. I'm, I'm, I'm following these cases with a lot of interest because there's a lot of people saying, "Okay, if they use my work to train these and these uh, artificial intelligence uh, generative AI uh, builds something that competes with my work, they will leave me without my." my work uh, they will replace me um, and I think I, I don't know from where should I start this because uh, first of all we have to say that um, the kind of technologies that replace people uh, people's works and have existed since technology exists it's like uh, there's always something that replaces human uh, labor, um, and you and 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 no one. Or yes, there were some movements which are interesting, like the Ludist movement uh, attacking the machines because of the impact the Luddites, of the yeah. machines. Yeah, this. Um, uh, but the problem is not the machine, but they use the people, the powerful people. Uh, they, they, they use that the powerful people uh, as with the machines. It's not a problem of technology. It's a political and economical problem. It's a problem of distribution of, of rents. It's a problem of uh, uh, inequality. It's not a problem of the technology. It's, it's not hmm. that the, the, the technology is... Uh, um, I'm not saying because I, I usually uh, argue against this idea of that of uh, technology as something neutral. Technology is an ideology vector of, as well. It's not neutral. Uh, technology is not, it, it doesn't depend on, of you use it for the good or for the bad and these moral ideas of now. Technology is an ideology vector that uh, impacts in society and it's part of the society and reflects society. It's part, it's, it's an inherent part of society. So technology is society. It's, it's, a, it's not something you can just separate from society and say, okay, this technology, we have to uh, forbid it because it's bad to society. If this technology emerges in a society, it's because the society is ready to produce this kind of technology. Having said that, let me say that from a corporate perspective, it's not easy to justify this idea of um, uh, that 
every the, the use of these uh, books or songs or whatever for training these uh, AIs is necessary an infringement. Uh, mm. Because what these uh, technologies, uh, what they do is to take some concepts from the, the, the works, um, which are the, 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 the characteristics of the work, the colors, the, the sound, uh, the rhythm in a song, or the, the, the uh, I don't know the word in English, the patrones, it's like the... The, the cadence, the pattern, the... The, exactly the, rhythm, the pattern. The that's that's a work. Yeah. That's the word I was I, I was looking for in my mind. Uh, the patterns of the work, not the work itself. So and the patterns are in public domain, like the ideas. Every idea is in the public domain. Just the work, the expression of the idea, is a protected work by copyright, and that is so because copyright is not uh, a thought for pay in every use of a work, but to uh, work as an incentive for creativity. And if you monopolize these patterns, then you block creativity. Um, that's mm. why the free culture movement is so uh, in, in favor of public domain, because without public domain, without free ideas, without free concepts and, and uh, all this cultural um, background, you cannot create anything. It's like mm. you need to read a lot to write one brilliant paragraph. Yeah, I think it's Joss Whedon who created Buffy. I think he was quoted once as saying, you need input for output. Exactly. And we are also, at Via Libre, we usually try not to... Uh, use personalization to AI because it works in a completely different manner than human brain. This idea of uh, uh, humanize these technologies is it's something that uh, doesn't help for a, a fully informed debate on them. But what these technologies are doing is getting the patrons from the works. We might have a debate and let's see what the courts resolve. Let's, <laughs> let's wait for their decisions. But we can ex maybe um, accept that there is a reprodu reproduction for training, but this is a temporal reproduction, which in, for example, the European Union is an exception to the... A, to the copyright, to author's rights. Because you need temporary reproductions, for example, to execute a song on Spotify or YouTube or, or in your browser. There are temporary copies which cannot be considered infringement because if you consider that as infringement, you have to close the internet. Because in right, the internet, because if, everything if is a copy. buffers on your phone, then technically you've got a copy on your you phone for the time exactly. until you clean your browser so, cache, right? That kind of copies should be permitted. It's a copy, yes, it's a copy. Copyright is a monopoly in the, uh, in the copies, yes. But this kind of, of copies, you have to permit them. Because if you 
if you don't do that, you have to close the internet all over the world. Mm. No more internet. Let's go back to the old... I'm not sure that this could be a good idea, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, if we don't have maybe internet, someone, we could... Maybe someone somewhere, maybe someone somewhere yes, in the smoking week. crater of civilization just or pulls just, the circuit breaker down. Yeah. Or just That's for it. a week. Let's go back to zero. Yes, just for a week, <laughs> let's go somewhere where no... But uh, it it's, it's, makes no sense because copyright is designed for the print, for the all Gutenberg mm. culture. For when it's, a copy was a single thing that made that took effort to produce, right? Exactly. Where you ha you have the copy as the measure to pay someone for his or her work, um, but it's not that the 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 authors and the creators have the right to earn money for every use of their their work. That's not the sense of copyright. Copyright is a public policy designed to, to work as, as, uh, as a promoter of creativity, but with a limit, with a very strong limit, mm. temporary limit and, and fair use limits. You can mm. do things with the work, like learning from the work. You cannot compose music if you didn't hear a lot of music before. And you can be sure that Every song you compose will have something from all those musicians you've heard before. And yeah, if you're in a metal band, if you're in a metal band and you write a tune and someone goes, oh, that sounds like Metallica. I love that. And it's got the classic, the best bit of the riff is right after the solo and they have the long intro. And, you know, if you structure it like Metallica, Metallica don't sue you because you Well, maybe Metallica will. <laughs> <laughs> Let's now use now. another example. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Touche. Touche. Busted. Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Maybe Metallica is the one band that works for you. <laughs> James, Lars, Kirk, Rob, if you're listening, but, I'm sorry. I love you guys. But yeah. <laughs> no, but, but if you block the style of a work and the copyright, then you block creativity style, mm. the, these characteristics of the gender. Um, and this, unless you can prove that something that is, has been produced by a generative AI is plagiarism, that, but you have to prove it work by work. You have to say this mm. product of this AI is exactly a copy of this work of my own. Well, my understanding that's, is that's exactly what the New York Times lawsuit is doing, right? Is they're exactly. giving specific examples where ChatGPT, I think it is, reproduced almost verbatim copies of New York Times articles. And and as you say, it, it, I find it a fascinating question with no easy answer because on the one hand, uh, for example, a writer that I admire and enjoyed very much when I first discovered his work is Charles Bukowski. And he writes quite often about how heavily influenced he was by the authors John Fante and Knut Hansen. Now, if Bukowski's influenced by John Fante and you read something like Brotherhood of the Grape by John Fante, and you can see the DNA that it shares with Post Office by Bukowski, or Hunger by Knut Hampson. And again, the there is a an influence that projects across time. 
But no one would suggest that Bukowski should have to pay royalties to Fanti because he read his books before becoming a writer. But at the same time, Bukowski spent most of his time being broke, drunk, and hungry, and wasn't a multi-billion dollar company run by wealthy people from the best universities who specifically built a machine in order to harvest the work of others to make money for themselves. So it's a very gray, mushy area. That's In a way, that's why I asked, because I feel like yes. it, it challenges the very idea of free culture. Yes, exactly. But Mike, let me tell you something. That problem you describe perfectly is not a problem of copyright. It's a problem of social distribution of wealth. Hmm. Now I'm the one who wants another two hours. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, it's, it is very interesting, though, how a lot of these conversations, particularly in the dystopian vein and about technology and power, how in a way, a lot of the time we drill down to a point where it becomes not Marxist, but a Marxian discussion where you see the relationship between capital and labor, between people who do work for money and people who use money to acquire work. And those two forces are not necessarily always fighting each other to the death the way Marx might have believed, but they have a natural tension between them. So if that's what you mean by the social distribution of wealth, exactly. and I think I totally agree with you. In, in the last 50 years productivity increased in a, in a line almost vertical. It, it was exponential. But the conditions of the people, of the laborers, are, with luck, they are stable. In fact, they are not stable. They are going down. So there is the problem. The problem is not technology. The problem is not copyright, in fact. The problem is this, how... Do we deal with a democracy that is uh, favoring governments that are aligned to the big corporations, that are uh, allowing big corporations to earn more and more and more and more money, destroying the planet, in fact, which is another dimension. We need more, two more hours, in fact. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's organize a conference or something like that. Uh, but... Destroying the, the only planet we have with huge consequences to the people living now, but with, to our grandchildren. Um, how do we deal with this kind of democracies that are not giving answers to the people's needs? Mm. And, and I, th I think this is the big uh, political question. This is not I, philosophical. It's a very, very concrete political question, which we should ask the politicians. And in fact, we should ask more than the politicians, uh, the corporations, the NGOs, uh, the journalists, and everyone. We, that's the question we should be doing ourselves. How do we build a democracy that uh, is in line with human rights, with the right to have a dignity, good labor conditions, um, a equal access to all the things we as society have built, science, health. Mm. It's, it's, 
unacceptable that having developed the cure for a lot of or tragically uh, um, uh, uh, problems, uh, health problems, uh, there's diseases, thank you, there's lots of people dying because they cannot pay the treatments. Mm. And losing their houses because they have to pay a cancer treatment. And how did we build this nightmare? It's not the future, it's now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, one, of the, one of the things I ruminate on quite often is my own feeling that there is almost a natural tendency towards monopoly in technology. And this is why my understanding of technocracy, of what I call the technocratic principle, the idea that people who are, quote, expert, end quote, in a particular field should be those who determine what happens for everyone else in that field because they're the experts. Um, I... I feel like this is related to that because on the one hand, I don't think, I don't think Sam Altman and OpenAI wants a bus driver from Boise, Idaho to be telling him how to run his company. And I also don't think that, I also don't think that um, we are totally interchangeable in that way. But at the same time, there is a tremendous air gap between where rules are made, where money is made, where technology is developed, and where most people live their lives, how they live, and also how they see their future. And we are changing the present and the future at a rate of knots that far exceeds, I think, both the capacity of us, the general public, to imagine, and by far exceeds our, our taste for change. It's, it's, um, I, I, there's a book I read years ago, um, by a guy who has a wonderful name. He was a professor at MIT named Norbert Wiener, wonderful name. And he wrote a book called God and Gollum Incorporated. He was MIT's professor of cybernetics. I think the first one, yeah. he wrote the book in 1969. Yeah. And in that book, I think he was the one who coined the phrase gadget worshiper. And he said, if the gadget worshippers take over the the technological sector, God help us. As in, if we get to the point where we're building and developing technology because we can, rather than because we see a real need for it in society and we know where it's going to be used and what the consequences will be, that we will be in for a difficult time and a rude awakening. And I think that those words, his idea, is very prescient. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and Absolutely. by the way, yeah, go on. Yes. In fact, um, one of the uh, big problems is that uh, that um, idea of technology is indistinguishable of uh, from magic. You know, it's like <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke. Any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Exactly that, um, and that's why I'm every day more and more committed to the ideas of free software. Because the first idea of free software was to put the control of technology 
in your hands, in my hands, in the hands of the people. This, mm. this idea of technology is something that is built somewhere else by someone else, and I cannot understand what this does. It's this opaque idea, this obscure idea, it's, it's all of a nightmare. And I think we are seeing the consequences of that. We don't understand the technologies that make decisions on our life on a daily basis. It's not something that will happen in the future. It's something that is happening now. Every video you see is because there is a technology that said, okay, I will give you this now, and then I will give you this other one and this other one. And every time you go to uh, buy something, there is a price set for you because of your profile. And there's a lot of decisions that are being made that impacts on us on a daily basis, every hour. And technology is around everything now. And not understanding the role of technology in our society, in our daily life, is one of the first problems we have to solve. That's why we cannot fight against the electronic voting when people believe that, okay, if it's technology, should be fine. Uh, or the camera to, to surveil your daily life when you go around the city. Um, this uh, idea of not understanding the technology is one of the first big, big problems. And standing this 2024, 20, um, it's hard to try to rebuild knowledge about all the technologies around us. It's really hard to try to understand it. I, I, as a professor at the university, sometimes I ask my students who are 21, 22 years old, how does the internet work? And they just watch me. They said, should I know that? Will you, will you ask that? Video. Uh, will you ask that in the final exam? <laughs> That's the, the, the main. And they said, how can you live in an environment where you don't understand anything of what is around you. What's it's under not, the bonnet, yeah. Exactly. It's not that I say that you have to understand everything. You don't need to know how a plane works and why it flies to just pick up a, fl a, a flight and go somewhere else. Uh, it's, you don't understand. You don't need to know physics to trust that the plane will fly and you will get there safe. You just have to try to trust the institutions and the, 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 all the, the, the things that function around that. But when you take to technology, digital technologies, at least, at least the minimum, at least control what you have installed in your phone. At hmm. least know the terms of use. At least understand what you accept when you accept something. At least understand that technology is not something that requires you to be a genius from a, a, an, a foreign country. In fact, in, in, in Latin America, we have this idea of, okay, technology, we have to import it. We cannot produce. Argentina has satellites, had nuclear uh, developments, have a, a strong software industry, and they are trying to destroy all of that 
Because now we have to buy, we, are, we have to produce soy and cows and meat and we can buy everything else. We don't need an industrial uh, potential in Argentina. Why? <laughs> we, should, we should produce meat and inflation and libertarians and street protests and we should import the competitive advantage of technology from the countries that are quote better at it sure, exactly right? and celebrate that Elon Musk is going to be a friend of our new president uh, and I think that it, it's this is uh, why <laughs> why can't we just develop our own technologies or build from some someone else's technology but in a in a manner where we control the technology. If we don't control technologies, technologies will be used to control us. And if mm. we don't understand them, they will be used to control us. And technology has this potential. And over these ideas we had in the 90s, where we thought that internet will free all of us and uh, we will be free to access to the knowledge of the whole world and that the knowledge will be put in the hands of everyone, we are living in a uh, in obscure era where everyone thinks they understand everything and we have conspiracy theories, anti-vaccine people and things like we thought, okay, uh, this wasn't the internet we thought we would have before. What happened? Well, what happened is that we don't understand the process behind technologies, which are political. It's, but mm -hmm. that's why I uh, vindicate the use of free software, because the, that's in the sense of free software. It's people free in front of technology. We can do what we want with the technology. Legally, we, we are not pirates, we are not uh, criminals, we just do technology and we use technology in a way that technology serves us mm. and not we in, in, in and we don't serve the te technologies. Uh, not for technologies because they are not subjects, they are just things. That, but through these technologies, we are serving someone else's. In fact, the a few. Uh, multi-billionaires that are um, getting the rent for this increase in productivity that we are testi testifying in the last 50 decades. Hmm. There's a quote of yours that I found in, uh, in an interview with you that I read in preparation for our discussion. And I wanted to use it as a kind of feeder line as we wrap up because I, it, it, it really resonated with me. I thought it was so beautiful and poetic. So I'm just going to say it back to you and then get your response because I have my own thoughts on it. You once said the blacksmith's home has wooden knives. Uh, sorry. I, I, I'm pretty sure I said it in Spanish, <laughs> but I didn't hear the translation. <laughs> Well, you said something in Spanish that was translated as the blacksmith's home has wooden knives. And it made me think of the reported fact that as many people in technology do, Steve Jobs was very famous for preventing his children from using Apple devices. They weren't allowed tablets or smartphones. So this 
this question, the blacksmith's home has wooden knives. The, the person that manufactures the blade won't use it. I find that to be a very poetic thing and also very dark because you're, <laughs> you're, you're selling something that you wouldn't have in your own house. Yes, it is that way because uh, these technologies are designed to steal us our privacy, our data, our thoughts, our dreams, our health, our work. And of course, no one wants their children to be in that position. And so as we finish up, um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you work in a very demanding field. You teach, you, you're active in protesting, you fight the government. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you yourself have had surveillance on you when you've been at uh, uh, gatherings and uh, lobbying. How do you... Um, how do you navigate a situation where you know you're being watched, where you know that people who are powerful don't like what you have to say or what you, what you want to achieve? And you're doing it in a country that has a long, unfortunate history of governments doing, admitting to doing, being caught doing, and getting away with doing truly terrible, murderous things to their own people. That seems to me to take either a tremendous amount of stubbornness or, in a weird way, a tremendous amount of optimism. And so, on a personal note, I, I just wanted to ask you how you navigate that for yourself and keep yourself on a, a steady and even keel. I'm an optimistic. But let me tell you that uh, the last election, uh, it was the first time I was scared. And I'm... 53 years old, so uh, I remember I was a child during the dictatorship. I have family missing by the dictatorship, um, by, but I'm, a, I'm an optimist. And the first thing I do is I keep my family uh, apart from what I do. Yeah, I'm, uh, if you look for me, I'm a very public people person I am in almost in the media all the time I'm well known here in Argentina and in Latin America uh, but no one knows anything about my family I don't show them they are I'm not in the social media they are not in social media um, so it's like I'm very very careful with my my family not only my direct family but my extended family uh, I, I'm very, very, uh, I, I take care of everything in that sense. Um, but I'm, a, I'm optimistic. I have to say this uh, 2024 finds me a little more pessimistic than before. Uh, I'm really scared about this new government. I don't know where will they uh, end. <laughs> um but I, I trust uh, people, I trust uh, democracy. I, 
in fact, if I, I wouldn't trust democracy and the people, I couldn't do what I do. Um, mm. But I, I am I'm optimistic. If you ask me, I, I usually, even while being very realistic, I try to pick up my battles because we cannot do everything. Um, but I am an optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Beatrice, I... I uh, I'm very very grateful for the chance we've had to speak together. I hope it's been something that was useful or interesting to you because it's been very uh, informative and educational and touching for me. I I really appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for this. <laughs> um, helping me have a voice outside Argentina, which is very important for most of the people here. <laughs> so I, I agree. thank you when I, so much. When I, well, absolutely. When I was writing the intro, that was something that came came up to my mind. I didn't put it in because in a kind of uh, scripted sense, it's dead. It's not, uh, it, it would sound pretentious, but what I do feel is true is on the one hand, it's important for me, for example, here in Britain to not forget that there's a world beyond the UK, Europe, America, Australia, Canada, the English-speaking countries that make up the majority of the news and information that I get here. Because there are places where things are different, uh, for better or for worse, and because there are different cultures, different perspectives that I need to hear and that are very useful to me personally, but also intellectually and for the purpose of the podcast... However, in a way, there's a kind of shadow side to that as well, which is speaking together today really shows me that the underlying tension, the underlying uh, concerns, what you in your way and I in my way are commenting on or resisting or trying to shine a light on are oddly universal that we seem to be living through a period of time where similar things are happening all over the world, um, regardless of language and geography. In a, you know, we hear in the news about the age of globalization being over because of new conflicts between great powers in the world. And that may be the case. We might start making cars or widgets again in Britain instead of importing them from China perhaps, but I think a kind of deeper globalization is taking place. Yes. And we see it in these trends that we've been discussing, in the universality of these concerns about privacy, technology, surveillance, and this question of what it means to be a human being and a citizen under a system rather than within it. Uh, so it's been very touching for me because it... It really feels like we are, those of us who are concerned about it are everywhere. Just like the problems are everywhere, the challenges are everywhere, but those of us who want to uh, to make sure that it doesn't go the worst way it can, that the others are out there. It's been beautiful and reassuring. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all for this episode of 1984 Today. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. 
If you want to support this podcast, please tell people about us and share our work. We're building this from the ground up, and your interest is the bricks and mortar of our shared endeavor. In the show notes, you'll find details for Beatrice as well, so that you can follow her work and support her as well. Until we meet again, keep the fire burning. We'll be back with more fuel next time. Goodbye.